I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with James Palsick. That's right. He's back. He's the director of education, safety and compliance at Flynn Scientific. And today we're talking about safety in science labs. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. And uh, uh, by the way, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Amy Buckley is the chief academic officer and co-founder of StudyHelp, a tutoring platform. You can hear Amy talk about StudyHelp at stephenmaletto.com slash 449. That's episode 449. Amy has given me a few hundred dollar gift cards uh, for StudyHelp, you know, to give away. That is so cool. Just send me an email at my contact page, stephenmaletto.com slash contact. Simply say, I would like a $100 gift card to study help. First come, first serve. This is a giveaway that is awesome. Good luck. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Flynn Scientific Incorporated, based in Batavia, Illinois, is a comprehensive multi-line supplier of manufactured and purchased science education products and curricula. Since its founding in 1977 as a laboratory chemical supplier to high school science teachers, Flynn has continuously expanded its product lines and markets and has developed an intensely loyal, growing base of science teacher customers across all 50 states. Science isn't just our business, it's our passion. We make teaching science easier because we believe in science. We believe in curiosity and determination, in the insatiable quest for knowledge and the transformative power of breakthroughs. We love those moments when true understanding dawns and the light bulbs come on, so we love enabling them in our own small way. James Palsick is the Director of Education, Safety, and Compliance at Flynn Scientific. Today, James will be talking about science and STEM safety trends and best practices. James, great to have you back on the show. We talked last in April of 21, so... Uh, Welcome back. Say hi to everyone. Well, thank you for having me back, and it is my absolute pleasure to be here with you, Stephen. Well, it's so cool to have you back, and uh, weather's a little different where you are uh, <laughs> this, this go-around. <laughs> this, this is true. <laughs> this is true. There is uh, definitely snow outside, and we are experiencing those uh, winter cold temperatures, as some of us in the northern states are, and not everyone is as fortunate to be down in the southern states where it is more uh, tropical <laughs> than it is here. Yes, we're a little warmer than you are right now, uh, but we are getting rain, lots of rain today, but it is, it's, uh, 
It's a really cool uh, 72 degrees out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't embarrass myself by telling you the temperature here today. So enjoy your 72 degrees. <laughs> oh, come on now. You started off that way. You got to tell us what it, <laughs> the temperature is there. Oh, well, today it is a whopping 21 degrees. Whoa. <laughs> I'm good with 72. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought you might be appreciative of that. Nice, nice. Well, well, James, it's awesome to have you back on. Uh, and I got it. We're we're going to be talking about safety in labs, and uh, you know, I can't believe that there's some people that just have accidents in labs. That's just uh, it's just one of those things that happens, I guess. Uh, yes, sadly it is. And uh, from from my perspective, most of those accidents are largely preventative. They can all be prevented if you do the right things up front. Many of these accidents are a result of uh, multiple factors, and you know we can we can talk about that. And you know, typically there are a handful of types of accidents, if you will, that occur. Um, do you want me to tell you what some of the common safety accidents that occur in a in a lab are? That would be awesome, James. Yeah, go ahead and tell us some of those common uh, types of uh, safety accidents. Absolutely. Now. When you think of your science lab, I want us all to just time travel back in our memories to when we were students ourselves, whether that was elementary school, middle school, high school. Most of us have those memories of high school of, oh, I had to dissect a fetal pig, or the chemistry teacher made this big explosion, or the physics teacher did this thing with a pendulum, or we, you know, we, we did something that was memorable. And that's great. Now, if done properly, you can have safer science and STEM programs. But when not done properly, there's usually accidents or injuries as a result of this. The most common ones, believe it or not, uh, involve things like broken glass. I can't tell you of a high school or a, or a middle school that has not had broken test tubes or beakers or flasks or graduated cylinders. But then, of course, you have to clean that up properly. You have to put that in designated broken glass receptacle. You have, you know, the, the potential for cuts to occur there, and that's actually one of the number one uh, issues or, or accidents that happen in labs. Chemical spills is another. So as you drop that beaker or that test tube containing a liquid, well, then you have a little chemical spill to deal with. And if you don't deal with that, there's the potential to have a chemical burn. Now, all of these things are, again, preventable, especially if you have proper techniques, proper uh, encouragement, and then you have the proper PPE in use in the proper way. So burns from hot plates or, or hot items is another very common uh, area of lab accidents. Now, most of these ceramic top hot plates, they don't light up bright red. They stay that same beige tan color. Now, there is a, usually a, an indicator light that will say, hey, it's still hot. But many students are not always as mindful, and you may get a potential, you know, burn. Scrapes and cuts, that is also part and parcel. Uh, you see that a lot in uh, introductory biology programs or general science programs where it may be the first time that they're using a scalpel or a probe and you really need to practice and use those proper techniques when you're doing that. Now, we're going to pivot a little bit and go into the chemical world 
And in chemistry labs or general science labs, sometimes you do things that create smoke. Now, inhalation hazards are not something you typically think of, but they're in the top 10. Now, top 10, uh, these are not top 10 good reasons. These are top 10 accidents, right? Right. Nice. Uh, now, floods, that's another problem that actually occurs because many times students will keep turning that faucet, right, the turret, and they're made out of brass, and over time they will break down, and then eventually that water will just keep flowing. And you need to take a pair of vice grips or pliers to actually shut that off or go underneath and shut that off because floods can be a real problem. But you can have slips, trips, and falls, but also allows electricity to travel all over the room if there is a short. And then, of course, fires. Fires are probably the most concerning uh, lab accidents that can occur. And again, I would say that 99.99% of these are preventable with the proper precautions taken and that level of safety and awareness that you need when operating in a science or STEM lab. You know, it's, it's just, I hate to say it this way, but it's just an accident waiting to happen if they're, they don't watch what they're doing, I guess. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it can be. And now let me share this uh, uh, remarkable and yet preventable statistic with you. Stephen, you've been an educator for a few years. Yes. If you were to guess what grade between grade one and grade 12, do you think most science lab accidents occur? What grade do you think it is? 11th. Very good guess. Very good. Now, I'm going to tell you the answer. <laughs> so wrong. Huh? I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave you there with, you know, Thanks. I'm not going to bait you like that. 70% of all lab accidents occur in grade nine. Wow. Now this was first uh, demonstrated with uh, studies and surveys done in 1996. So Dr. Larry Duff did that. Uh, he's out of Omaha, Nebraska. And this was also replicated just last year in 2020 by uh, Dr. Ken Roy, Dr. Uh, Phil Serenities, and Dr. Tyler Love. And they published this. It's all out there. It's all peer-reviewed. There's a, a journal white paper on this called TFOS. And they were able to demonstrate that the exact same thing was happening 25 years later. So what have we not learned in those 25 years Back to your point of it's an accident waiting to happen. Yes. So let me ask, let me ask the audience a question so that they can just reflect on it. If you know that the majority of those accidents happen in grade nine, if you were a middle school teacher, grade six, seven, and eight, or you're a teacher of grade nine students, what could you do proactively to prevent that statistic from being as high as it is, knowing that your students in grade nine have an exponentially higher rate of injury and accident. There are answers, but I want people to reflect on that. And maybe we'll touch on those as our conversation continues here, Stephen. 
I like that. That's a good question because that's it, it makes no sense. Why twenty years <laughs> pass and we're still having the same problems? Because I, you know, I chose eleventh grade because a lot of times that's chemistry, and I was thinking right. that uh, you know I had a, my chemistry teachers were, you know, they were fun, and I I wonder if they had inhaled a little too much of something. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're. There, there may have been a little bit of that. Yes, it could have happened. <laughs> it makes you wonder because they were a little crazy, and uh, that's why I picked 11th grade. But, uh, <laughs> I, oh, my gosh, it's, it's just insane that those numbers have stayed constant. And, uh, you yes, know, one, it is. And so it makes me ask, I mean, do, do you think, and, and we'll come back to some of those, those questions you're asking. You know, do you think that some accidents happen because the teacher's trying to grab the attention of the students and just get them to go, wow, or that was cool? I mean, do you think that's one of the possibilities? That is absolutely a possibility. Um, listen, trying to impress your students, it's, it's, it's useful, right? And typically, teachers do those demonstrations or, or those activities as a whole group uh, experience. And they do that to reinforce prior learning. They do that to connect multiple concepts together or sometimes to introduce new concepts to the class. Now, as I just discussed, those memory maker moments, right? Those things that you will remember, those those great uh, experiences. Those accidents and injuries that occur are typically as a result of teachers being unaware of the hazards or the risks associated with the materials, the chemicals, or the equipment and apparatus that they're using. And it doesn't always happen with new teachers. It can happen with experienced teachers as well. Uh, complacency can be a problem. I've done this multiple times for multiple years. Nothing's ever happened, and you continue to do the same thing. That is that is a, a big problem. So that awareness really needs to be there, right? And as much fun as it would be to have those memory makers, you really, really need to be sure of what you're doing and how you're handling that. Now, the Chemical Safety Board here in, in the United States, uh, one of the most referenced cases of this is actually the Calais Weber case, came out of Ohio from a private school. And they actually made a short video. It's very, very powerful. It's called After the Rainbow. And I would encourage everyone in a science and STEM program to spend the five minutes and watch that and learn what can happen when you truly don't understand the hazards of the chemicals that you're dealing with, because this poor girl was very badly burned because the teacher was unaware of what would happen when adding uh, methanol or methyl alcohol to salt to get the flames to be a little bit bigger to show the different colors in the rainbow. Now that activity has since been banned by Every professional educators association has been banned uh, for use in schools. But I would really, really like people to, to understand the hazards of the chemicals that they're handling. And, you know, listen, I, I work for a chemical company, a very large progressive chemical company, and I really do not like the fact that methanol and nitric acid are used in schools today. And I can guarantee you that every high school lab that I walk into, if I go into that chemical storeroom, I will find methanol or methyl alcohol or one of its common uh, consumer commodity names, and I will find nitric acid. 
And so I often ask those people in there, the teachers and the department head, what do you use that for? How often are you using it? How much of it are you using? And then I finish that conversation with, do you think that there is a less hazardous alternative that you could use to still demonstrate the same curricular topic or impact that you're looking for, but that's much safer for you and your students? And I will tell you that the answer is yes, there always is an alternative to that. It's, it's, I hope I answered your question. Oh, you did. You did big time, James, because this is, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, because I, just as a side note, I mean, I, I have, uh, um, I was a teacher in a building where a kid um, blinded, you know, caused uh, another child to lose eyesight in one eye because of uh, goofing around with those, you know, those bottles that, uh, the squeeze bottles that have the little. Yes, the, the wash bottles or the dropper bottles. Yeah, the, yeah and uh it had some sort of acid in it and uh, the kid thought he was picking up the one with the water in it and, and picked up the one that had the acid and, and it blinded the girl in the, in the one eye. And, you know, and it's, terrible. it is terrible. And there's things like uh, any number of things that could have gone awry and other things. I mean, I was in as, as a long time ago, but uh, you know, in the late seventies, uh, early eighties, I'm in a chemistry class where uh, he's doing a simple one where you put the soap bubbles in the water and yes. uh, you put the soap in the water, dish soap in the water and you put the, right. you have the, I think zinc in the container and you're, you put uh, hydrochloric acid or something like that in there. That is cor- absolutely correct. And you capture the hydrogen gas. Is yes. That the activity. Yes. That's it. Yes. And then he, uh, you know, he put it up high so everybody could see it on this one shelf towards the, the side wall. It's a very large lab room, very large uh, class. And, and, uh, <laughs> Then he lit a splint or whatever you call those little wood yes, things. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. it. That's what I thought. And he and he took it and he tossed it up there and it went poof, really re- rather nicely and then caught the curtains on fire because he stuck them right there next to the... It's like brilliant, man. And you know the good thing ah. is there's no YouTube in those days or the phones that can record. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have been all over the world. Um, right. But, uh, he, you know, um, I witnessed one of those and um, as well as... There's some, is it magnesium or one of the... Yes, the magnesium burns very, very hot, bright white, yes. 1,400 degrees. That one? Yeah. Yes, that one. That would be it. <laughs> and uh, That's the most commonly <laughs> stolen uh, chemical, by the way, out of high school labs is when teachers cut up those uh, little pieces of magnesium ribbon into one-inch strips where the students can do that activity very little ever returns back because a lot of students take that home so that they can show their friends or their family that. And that again is just a a teacher management, classroom management, uh, preventative measure that really uh, is something that people do need to be mindful of, especially when using very high temperature uh, compounds like that. Well, I actually saw the teacher burn himself accidentally, not on purpose, oh. but he wasn't paying attention to what he was doing, and and he that he managed to get himself a pretty oh. serious burn out of that. So, and it's it's just crazy the oh. different things that can happen. I mean, I and uh, just as a side note, I've you know I've took my share of college, uh, um, high school and college chemistry classes. I love the the classes where you you take a substance and you have to figure out what's in that substance, which that's awesome. Right. But uh, one of the things I learned is that when you go to uh, you take classes in a, in a university where it's, you know, the place was built in the 1890s, early 1900s, and, 
you know, a lot of people been in that science lab and, uh, you know, you got to be careful because that, that some of that wood, it's flammable. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed it is. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to someone who twice set the lab table on fire. I didn't do it on purpose. You know, it's like. Um, no, and that's that's right. Things like this never are never done on purpose. There's never uh, malicious intent. But uh, again, if you take the proper safety protocols and the time to understand your surroundings and have that awareness, you may do things differently. And I'm willing to bet that after the first time, if not definitely after the second time that lab table was on fire, you did things differently to make sure that did not happen again. Oh yeah, it was, and it was it was simple. Uh, basically, it was simple things happening where you know you're you're heating up a you're using a Bunsen burner, you're heating up the test tube, and you know you always have one hand that doesn't have the glove on it, right? <laughs> and maybe I would say I disagree, but I, <laughs> well, it's it's because you're turning the page or whatever I was doing, and right. uh, you know, so when when you actually then go to grab the other thing from the other hand because you need to use that other hand and it doesn't have the glove on it, which you forget, and you ow, and you bunt <laughs> the Bunsen burner right. goes up under the wood. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, I'm a I'm a senior. And were you working with a lab partner at that time, oh, yeah. or were you alone? No, I was working with a lab partner actually. And oh, uh, very um, good. As a result of all this, the uh, um, though the uh, the professor decided that <laughs> we needed that uh, when we worked on Saturdays, we were no longer allowed to work by ourselves in on the Saturdays. Very in the good. Lab. <laughs> that is that is excellent. Hey, that brings up a very interesting uh, uh, segue into what your duty of care obligations are as an educator and how that extends. And, you know, what you just talked about there is called the duty of supervision. And that is something that, you know, you would never let students be alone in a science lab for any reason whatsoever. I mean, there has to be a, a trained instructor, uh, an adult in that room, just even if they're not doing an activity, but just because of what is located in that room, uh, and having access to it, you need to have someone there uh, supervising at all times. So if you're not in that room, no one else is in that room. That's the that's the rule. Makes perfect sense. I got to tell you that, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's, especially after experiencing why you, it's nice to have someone who understands quickly how to put that fire out. <laughs> so. Well, exactly right. And if you were, if the educator instructor was really on their game, that fire could never happen because the students would be, it would be over communicated what to do, how to make sure that doesn't happen, and then what to do in case it does happen. And that you would be at the ready at all times with multiple strategies in place. It makes perfect sense. I, you know, and I'm going to use that to, to lead into this question. I mean, how can educators actually help students learn in a safer environment by conducting a hazard assessment? Ah, uh, let me tell you, that that is a great question. I love uh, hazard assessments for multiple reasons. Sometimes in different jurisdictions, they're called a risk assessment, but really it's a, it's a hazard assessment. And what that hazard assessment does is it identifies any risks involved while meeting your curricular expectations in a safer learning and teaching environment. Now, I mean, you what you would do is you, you need to understand what those risks are and the risks can be associated with the various pieces of equipment or uh, apparatus, but also as discussed, the chemicals that you're handling because chemicals have different handling uh, uh, techniques with them 
And they, there's different strategies and there's different methodologies to deal with acids versus uh, caustics or bases versus flammables, you know, the solvents. We're not really too concerned about your typical uh, salt solutions, sugar solutions, uh, you know, those relatively inert things like that. Right. But also, when you start to do this assessment, you look at, well, what are the potentials for a fire? What is the potential for a chemical spill? What is the potential for student injury? Uh, and then you balance that against the curricular expectations. And if the educational, or sorry, pardon me, if the risk exceeds the educational value, you just do not do that activity. It's really that, that uh, simple. Now, I talked about your duty of care obligations, and really when you take all of that legislation and you, you look at what the responsibilities and accountabilities are, you want to make sure that you have a safe place for students to learn, but that you also have a safe place for you uh, as a worker and for your colleagues as well. You know, I'm often asked, well, how do you actually do a hazard assessment or hazard analysis? And I really like the, the real simple uh, the 3A approach. So if you, if you were to Google hazard uh, assessment 3A, you'll come up with uh, the three A's, which are analysis, assessment, uh, and action. Really quite simple. Now, the first step, like we discussed, you analyze for any potential hazards uh, and you look at all kinds of those things. So even things as simple as when you use a retort stand with a ring clamp on it. Now, do you tell your students to put the ring clamp right at the top because then it has a higher potential to fall over? No, you want it to be down in the middle, but also above the, the right height above a flame, if that's what you're doing, or above the, you know, a hot plate, uh, all kinds of different things in there. Now, typically this hazard analysis is based on a teacher's previous experience. So something that they've already seen, done, walked through, whatever, as well as they can glean a whole lot of information from the safety data sheet for each and every chemical that they're using. They could also refer to that chemical hygiene plan or science safety manual that they have in their uh, school district, in their jurisdiction. Now, when they do that assessment, they really take that uh, SDS sheet when thinking about chemicals. And you look to see what are the hazards. So the nice thing with uh, the new global harmonized system of uh, chemical labeling and communication is that the United Nations has prescribed the language, they've simplified things, and they've also made it consistent. So that I know that section two, no matter where I buy my bottle of salt, sodium chloride, is going to be the hazard identification. And section five, regardless of the supplier, is going to be firefighting measures. And six is, and this is one of my favorite terms, accidental release measures. That's really the, the diplomatic way of saying a chemical spill. Nice. Oh my goodness, I have a chemical spill. I need to deal with that accidental release. Nice. And then the stability and reactivity are in section 10. And then from a health hazard, where are the toxicological properties? That's in section 11. So just by looking at a handful of that, uh, you'll have a really good understanding of what you're handling and using. And then the last A is uh, action. And you determine the action based on the, you know, evaluating those hazards or risks. Uh, you need to make sure that you have the proper safety equipment on hand for anything that you're using. 
So if you have the potential for a fire, if you're using a solvent or a flammable, you need to make sure that you have a fire extinguisher, a fire blanket, uh, pails of dry sand. You need to make sure you have all that on hand. You don't go and look for it in case of a fire. It needs to be there and properly placarded, signed so that people know where it is. Uh, you definitely need to make sure, above all, uh, that you have a minimum basic PPE. So your goggles, which are ANSI uh, Z87.1 D3 stamped. Those are the ones with indirect venting. So they're chemical and uh, impact-resistant goggles. No dollar store goggles are allowed, period. They all have to be proper certified goggles. It's a very minimal investment and worth all that it's worth. Like you just can't make a better investment than proper goggles in your schools. And really, uh, again, if you uh, think that the risk is too high, don't do the activity. Look for an alternative that can still help you achieve that curricular outcome or indicator or what you're looking to do. Weave in some potential digital content. Watch something on YouTube if it's that critically important to you. But as our awareness grows in the science education and safety community, it is imperative that we do not do these activities as much fun as they may be and as memorable as they might be that have the potential to cause harm because we cannot uh, have our students going to school. The parents send them to school. That's their most precious asset. And they believe that schools are a safe haven. It's a safe place. So I think it's really our responsibility as science STEM educators to make sure that we do that and that we do our due diligence up front. I don't want to have prescribed lessons or prescribed activities, but as a good uh, professional standards-based best practice, talk to your colleagues in the school, talk to your colleagues within the district or in part of your professional learning communities and share, collaborate those different resources. You can use uh, companies, uh, trusted science supply companies, are more than happy to help guide people along that. And regardless of the uh, educational framework that's used, so uh, where you are, it's the 3D model of instruction. And a lot of other states are using an NGSS model. Well, all of these are design or inquiry outcome-based learning frameworks. And within there, you empower the students to come up with the solution which then adds another layer to that hazard assessment because your students will write out a list of procedures to meet that inquiry design challenge, bring it to the teacher for approval, but the teacher really needs to understand what they're looking for in order to say, yes, proceed, go ahead, or actually, guys, let's slow down here for a minute. Let's see if there's maybe a safer way to accomplish this. I like that. That's uh it's so important because, you know, like you said, the, the simple accidents could end up maiming, you know, forget destruction to property. The, the worst thing is what could happen to the individual. And, uh, and, right. then, and on top of that, if you put the destruction of property and so forth, it didn't need to happen. Um, you know, it's uh, just crazy. And, and, and so, so important, uh, this idea of the hazard assessment. I love it. Thanks for talking about that. I mean, you know, 
something else that I've heard you, you mentioned before is something called hygiene protocols. So I was wondering if you could talk okay. a little bit about the hygiene protocols occurring now in schools in the, in the sure. science labs. <laughs> well, uh, yes, these hygiene protocols, let, uh, in complete transparency, they were always in place. They were always there in the science and STEM labs across the departments, but they have been heightened due to the pandemic. So by those uh, uh, hygiene uh, experiences, you will, or hygiene protocols, it comes down to that ongoing vigilance on sanitation, disinfection, uh, and prevention. And there's a, just a handful of quick points in here because we've all been doing this now for pretty much two years, uh, whether it was in a remote situation or when we finally did get back to our face-to-face uh, -face instructional modalities. The, the rules are quite simple, and these are from uh, trusted authorities, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, from uh, UNESCO, from NIOSH, from multiple uh, educator associations, from basically everyone in that, in that uh, sanitation, hygiene, and prevention world. And what they're suggesting is that you clean and disinfect all communal equipment before and after use. So if you're doing an activity with microscopes, those microscopes would need to be cleaned first, disinfected, used, and then same process and put back away. Um, that includes really everything. Also, the workspace that you're using as well needs to be sanitized multiple times a day, especially because our students cycle in and out of those labs. They don't spend the, the whole day in there. Many different school districts or school divisions have a safety eyewear hygiene plan in place now. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means you have to make sure that you have a protocol for cleaning those goggles or safety glasses before they are used by another student. Now, oftentimes, you can uh, use that Lysol dip method, and I think we talked about that the last time, but, you know, simply mix a solution of an ounce and a quarter of Lysol into a, a big bin uh, and immerse your, your goggles in there. Sorry, you mix that with a gallon of water. Immerse your goggles in there. And that gives you 99.9% um, disinfection. And the fortunate schools that have a UV goggle sanitation cabinet can then put those goggles in there, run them through one cycle, and they're at 99.99% uh, sanitation, which is very, very effective. Nice. Because not every school has the ability to provide each student with their own dedicated assigned pair of uh, ANSI Z87.1 D3 indirectly vented certified goggles. I can't mention that enough. <laughs> and uh, that is uh, something on the hygiene protocols that's uh, been relatively new within the last year as we've gone back to school. Washing hands, hand hygiene, something as simple as making sure that your students are washing their hands. And we have luxuries in science and STEM labs because there are usually multiple sinks, fully functional sinks in there. Just make sure you have soap on hand. It's as simple as that. And make sure your students do that for 20 seconds. And that goes a long, long way on, on preventing the spread of COVID-19 and various uh, variants, if you will. And then 
at, as you're actually conducting an activity or an experience with your students, if you or your students notice that a tool or a piece of equipment or glassware is damaged or cracked or chipped or whatever is wrong with it, they need to be able to bring that to the instructor and say, hey, this isn't safe, I'm not using that, and then you just swap that out with a, a replacement. But that damaged item does not go back into the rotation of, of use with students or with your colleagues if it's in the prep room or chemical storeroom. So uh, definitely uh, uh, you want to make sure that you have all of those things in place uh, from a hygiene standpoint because uh, that's what it comes down to. Now, the socio-political uh, debate on the use of face masks in schools, listen, all I will say on that point there is follow your local health authority uh, mandates. Listen to your school district and just make sure you're in alignment with that. And I think we'll leave it at that, Stephen. That? that makes sense. That's a good. That's a good place to to, to go with that. I appreciate it, and 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 that's awesome. I appreciate you explaining about those hygiene protocols because you know it's funny. You're right. I mean, for the longest time, I mean the the idea of washing the area and the and taking care of the everything from the beakers to the to the tabletops to right. you know just dealing with all this stuff and especially the. Uh, you know, there's this little thing called pink eye that's been around for a long time. Ah, yes, <laughs> you know? absolutely. So, Acute conjunctivitis, as it's known here in the scientific community. You got it. Nice. And so there's been lots of reasons to make sure those things are extremely clean before the uh, kids share them. So uh, good stuff. Definitely. I appreciate you sharing those. You, you, one of the things, you know, we're constantly starting and stopping uh, uh, terms, years, school years and such. And uh, so there's <laughs> start and stop moments where uh, the teachers uh, have an opportunity here. And so what I wanted to do is, you know, do you have a recommendation for how teachers should introduce lab and safety procedures, you know, for the start oh. of a new term or a, a new year? Absolutely. And, and it, it's always time well spent. So when we go back to that 70% of accidents happen in grade nine, let me tell you, grade nine educators really need to spend more than just a few moments on this. This needs to be a dedicated period, if not more. So always on the first day of the semester or first day of the year, if you're in a year-long uh, format, you need to review those safety protocols, you need to review those rules, uh, and you really need to demonstrate that proper expected behavior uh, yourself as the lead safety advocate in that room. So things as, you know, wear your goggles properly. If the teacher is wearing their goggles and they're up here on their forehead because it looks cool or down here hanging around their neck, it does absolutely nothing. They need to be properly wearing those uh, goggles, wear their proper nitrile gloves, wear a lab coat or an apron. And then guess what? The process of mimicry, which we all study in biology, exists all across uh, the entire, every biome in the world. And it works. There's a reason that our young learn from us. They mimic our behavior. And guess what? Your students will do the same thing. So you really need to model the change that you want to see in that laboratory. Now, you don't just talk about safety on day one and never bring it up again. So you need to go over uh, all of these rules, and many jurisdictions are using a lab safety contract or a lab safety acknowledgement form. 
those really highlight what the uh, expected behaviors are, and they showcase or illustrate why it is important uh, to be followed. And they are sometimes shorter, sometimes uh, significantly longer. But make sure that you review each and every one of those bullet points with your students and make sure that their age uh, and grade level and also discipline or subject area specific as well. And then you need to take a tour of your lab with those students and you need to show them, hey, this is where the fire extinguisher is. This is where the fire blanket is. Here is uh, where the first aid kit is. Here's where the chemical spill kit is. And then you need to show them what the engineering controls are in that room. So by engineering controls, of course, I mean the eyewash station or a drench shower or a fume hood that's actually built in to the building itself. You need to show them where the fire pull is in case there is a fire. You need to show them and demonstrate things like they're under no circumstances are students allowed in the prep room. They're banned from that area. And if there is a fire, you need to make sure that you are, uh, your students know to follow what is posted by the door. And if you, as the educator, are injured or something happens, that they know how to reach the main office. They can use the PA system or the phone, what have you. There's a lot of these different rules uh, that exist. And then here's the best part. You do this on day one. You go through all of this on day one. Then you have the students get involved. Many, many uh, science and STEM educators have students create posters or talk about a specific safety rule, and then they take a little more ownership in that. It's also a nice visual when you have that posted all around your laboratory, right? It's, it's good, especially in grade nine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I would, if I had, had to do this all over again after listening to this, I would be going to my ninth grade teachers going, okay, Time out. <laughs> you know, we need to talk. <laughs> exactly. Now, here's the most critical piece. Not that all the other ones weren't critical, but this would be the priority. Each and every time that you're performing a science or STEM activity, experience, investigation, whatever term it is that you feel comfortable using, you need to make sure that you go through those procedures with the students. You verbally tell them, you demonstrate, you show them. And you also have that all written out that they follow a sequential lab procedure, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever it is. And that at any time, if students are unsure about something, it has to be that same question safe environment where they can say, uh, excuse me, uh, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I feel a little uneasy. Can you come over here and help me out? And again, as the responsible adult in charge, as the, supervisor in that room, you have that responsibility and accountability to make sure that you're not just watching that group perform their activity, but also have a line of sight to all the other ones. And if you do all of this and it becomes regular, it becomes routine, if you will, that really helps establish a solid foundation of safety appreciation for your students and for your whole department as a whole. I hope I answered your question about, uh, you know, lab procedures and you know, how do you introduce them. It, it, and the best teachers, Stephen, I will tell you this, the absolute best and most safety aware science teachers talk about safety each and every day of that, that year or that semester, even when there's not an activity going on. 
they open their day and they say, well, you know what, right here is rule number 18 is, uh, you know, no running in the lab. Now, this is important because, and you spend two minutes on that and you just make a little check mark on there and you just go through those each and every day and that's your safety minute in the daytime. That's what happens in industry. That's what happens in the workplace. So we should be doing the exact same in school. Again, going back to that mimicry comment, we should be learning from uh, career and workplace. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially the understanding that it, not a day goes by that you can't take a minute to to mention something about it because there's just any number of things that can happen because you're dealing with, you know, depending on the size of the class, uh, there's all those different personalities and all many and all those different things that might possibly happen. And so important to reemphasize to the kids when you get a chance that uh, that safety matters and that it is something that uh, can end up bad. I mean, I've, you know, all you got to do, is, <laughs> as a side note, all you got to do is watch the, there's a few YouTube videos out there where oh. you're, they look so painful and uh, you know, somebody was seriously hurt out of these, vid, you know, uh, by right. these accidents by, and all it is is somebody filming something that, a teacher set up and was doing and, uh, and went awry. So good stuff. That's right. There is no shortage of that uh, content on the internet. And some teachers actually use that as part of the media literacy program and blend that in with science and STEM and actually have students go and find me something that was preventable and then identify what should have happened to make this a much safer activity. Again, there's lots of ways we can make safety, you know, fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's an awesome idea. What you just said, that's just a good one. Identify what could have, what should have been done. And I like that, you know, good stuff. Let's, you know, we just had a winter break not too long ago as well as we're, we're um, you know, some of us are in areas, uh, not me, but some of us are in areas <laughs> where snow might make it last a little longer or something like this. Um, are there, are there suggestions you make to teachers about preparing for, you know, in their science and STEM class, uh, for students being out for extended periods of time? Absolutely. And, you know, it wouldn't be Flynn Scientific if we didn't have a checklist already built for, uh, for exactly that reason. I like that. Now, now, when you look at it, there's, there's really, there's about a dozen key action items that need to occur uh, each and every time that the school is closed for any period longer than two weeks. And there's a reason that that two weeks is important. So, as you typically close down for the uh, winter holidays, you have to do certain things, but definitely, absolutely for the summer vacation, which is typically uh, about eight weeks long, you're, there are things that you need to do. Uh, and this is to make sure that, that uh, the department is in uh, perfect shape when you return. You want to leave it nice, clean, organized and return to it the same way. But as members of the science and STEM department, number one, keep the rooms and especially all those chemical storage cabinets locked. Seems simple, but I'll tell you, uh, that is something that doesn't always happen. Ensure that you have adequate ventilation. Uh, that's to make sure that if you do have any odor problems, any incompatible chemical storage problems causing odors, biologicals causing odors, whatever that may be, that it is properly vented and removed. And there's a whole ventilation remediation program that can happen there. You want to make sure that there is no clutter, there's no uh, mess uh, in your prep room, in your chemical storeroom, uh, and also in each of your individual labs. 
ideally you want to make sure that your chemicals are all stored properly. So that means that they're stored according to a recognized uh, classification and storage system. You want to make sure your biological specimens are stored properly. There's nothing worse than uh, some old biological dissection specimens that have just uh, started to go bad. They're just horrid. Uh, And your nose will tell you when you go down the hallway that something is wrong. Trust your nose in that situation. Make sure that you have a current chemical inventory on hand. That's something that uh, is a legal requirement, but most schools actually don't have uh, that. And they also then typically don't have uh, uh, an alignment to their necessary SDSs or safety data sheets that accompany those chemicals. Here's something often overlooked, but once you do it, you never forget. We talked about experiences earlier on. Empty your lab fridge. Oh, (laughs) things like uh, old eggs that are two months old, old dairy products, old things that are in there. Get rid of that. Purge that, especially when the school is being closed. Uh, uh, Never use your lab fridge either for your uh, lunch, for beverages or food or whatever. It is exclusively to be used for science specimens, chemicals, etc. That is something that I... I tell people that and they laugh at me just like you're doing. Oh yeah. But I have, I have a fridge in my, in my lab or in my office, science office. So I'm going to keep my lunch in there. No, <laughs> do not keep your lunch in there. I was hoping Actually, you're going to mention that. <laughs> it should have a sign on there that says no food or drink allowed, but you know, science use only is what it should have. <laughs> oh man. I had, uh, I had a college professor that's, he kept a lot of interesting things in that refrigerator, including uh, his meals. And it's like <laughs> you'd see him reach in and grab something and take it out, and then you'd see yeah. him go back. And I experienced this not as a, as his lab assistant. That's what I would, that was what I was in there for. That's why I would that's why I would see this. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, you would you just didn't say it to him because he he's just gonna look at you sideways and go, yeah, if you want to keep being uh, my lab assistant, shut up and go away. You know. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said something because. That's that's very important. If you if you do notice something that's wrong, you do need to communicate that and and voice that. That's very important. All I know is it was now disgusting. When, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now, as you're getting ready for your preparations to close this, a couple other things: uh, make sure that all of your master control switches are in the off and locked position, so your master electrical, uh, master gas uh, valves are all shut and and locked off. Uh, many times uh, valves, water valves to the individual sinks and the plumbing system should be shut off as well. Um, If you do have any uh, aquariums or terrariums uh, or things of that nature, you need to have a a plan uh, for your live animals and your plants. If no one's in the building, you need to have something in place. You need to also unplug all of your electrical items in case of a surge, in case of a, a fault happening. Uh, as a best practice, the P-traps underneath your sinks and the floor drains, top them up with water, and that will prevent any sewer gas from climbing back up through there. And in the warmer climate states, fill that up and then put a couple drops of vegetable oil on top, and that will prevent the um, it will prevent the uh, evaporation of that water and it will still function perfectly as a P-trap in those uh, drains. And then, of course, 
the last thing and always the most important is communicate all of this with your school admin and with your maintenance and facilities people. They need to be part of your overall uh, team because this is a very big uh, department. It's a collaborative uh, part of the school. And just make sure that you do communicate everything that you've done. And uh, if there's any deficiencies that you've identified, you need to make sure that you document those and share that with your administrator as well. I like that. Awesome. And then, you know, that last part, uh, that's so important because sometimes, you know, in, in this world of wanting to conserve energy and so forth, uh, you always run into some administrator at some level who wants to shut down the power of the entire building. <laughs> yes. And let, let, let me tell you, uh, there are very few schools which are climate controlled over the summer holiday. And that can lead to chemical sweating when those rooms get very, very hot, very, very humid. Uh, some of them can actually get so hot and so sweaty, the labels can actually peel off of them as the bottles may swell inside. Not seeing as much of that anymore as we used to, but the biological specimens can also uh, suffer from uh, increased temperature and humidity. A fundamental lab is actually the rates of, of reaction lab. And typically what happens is you increase the temperature, the rate of reaction also goes up in a very linear format. It's a, it's a pretty neat uh, relationship. Well, the same thing happens to all of our equipment, apparatus, materials, chemicals, etc. So you just need to be mindful. Gotcha. Awesome advice. Awesome advice. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, over the last uh, two years, as you mentioned before, we're, we're pretty much there or two years. You know, it's uh, um, we've had situations where we've been forced into remote land. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things that we have to think about here is in, in case that were to happen again, I mean, are there any words of advice for teachers and administrators on offering science and STEM um, in these situations, you know, in, in case school closure? Uh, absolutely. And, and the reality is, I think that we all need to be uh, prepared in case that happens again. And we just need to switch the environment or switch the, the modality that should, that we, we are ready uh, rather than uh, in March of 2020, when most of us were unprepared. Uh, I think we can do things in a much more planned and purposeful way now. So from my perspective, I don't think that student learning needs to stop when your brick and mortar building is inaccessible anymore because you're in a remote uh, instructional and learning uh, system or, or environment. There's lots of creative and engaging ways that educators can still make sure that students uh, are progressing along their, you know, their continuum of learning. And you, science and STEM comes with a handful of other different safety requirements. Uh, to do that. Now, many educators, we've really become uh, experts in online content delivery over the past two years. And there is no substitute for that hands-on tactile, uh, you know, experience in the school. The use of virtual labs and the, the, the uh, use of digital content has really come a long way in a very, very short period of time whether it's publishers, whether it's suppliers, whether it's uh, government agencies, uh, non-government agencies, there's lots of different organizations all empowering educators to make sure that that student is successful and that they do have that fundamental baseline of knowledge and comprehension. Now, 
listen, I'm biased. Okay. I work here at Flynn Scientific. Uh, I can't hide that. Uh, we have an arsenal of digital solutions that you can use for different grade levels to meet different expectations across different disciplines. And we, uh, something that we're, we're seeing is that blended learning has also come to the forefront in a lot of areas where you may have a, you know, half time at home, half time in the school, different cohorts. We're seeing a lot of cohorting happening uh, in different places. And I think if you use some of that uh, or some of those digital solutions, I think that that can really be a, a learning scaffold to help your students, again, progress along their continuum. And we want to make sure that that, uh, that is done uh, safely and effectively. So here at, at Flynn, we have a new platform, and it's dedicated to this. It's called PAVO, P-A-V-O. Uh, and it is really the, uh, it's the next generation of science education. And it's really technology that's used to facilitate teacher instruction and enhance student learning simultaneously. So our PAVO program, it's powerful. It's a, it might be the solution that educators are looking for to really enhance their existing program make it more robust and help meet the needs of their students. And it works in a remote situation. It also works as a pre-lab situation because if you have a compressed school year because of school closures and whatnot, you want to maximize your time in that laboratory in a face-to-face hands-on situation. Wouldn't it be great to be able to offer a lot of those experiences to the students beforehand so they have a better appreciation of what they're doing? then they can come in and do that in a hands-on way. We've, of course, made kits that are aligned to that as well and various topics that exist uh, in grade levels. So we've really uh, done a lot of research and a lot of work to make sure that we can really be the provider of choice for science and STEM educators to help students be as successful as possible. That's awesome. That's awesome. I <laughs> And, and, and there are. I'm glad you went to Pavel because I was I was going to ask you about that, and, and that's, that's cool to hear that that's that's there. And I got to ask you. I mean, one of the things that and I and I, you know, just just something. You know, well, before I ask my question, you know, one of the things <laughs> you just made me think about is that I think about the some of the science labs that I had to do when uh, that were dissection labs and stuff like this, where you're studying electrical electrical nervous systems and, <laughs> and skeletal systems well, yes, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, how cool it would have been to have had a preview of uh, the teacher pointing out, you know, video to go watch before you came into the lab where they were showing specifically what some of the things were that you were looking for to, to find instead of the, uh, um, it, it just would, right. that would have been powerful. That's just, it's fascinating kind of how that, and that kind of leads me into this question, which is, is there something that you think has really just kind of changed the way, um, that we've pulled out of this, you know, a positive out of the pandemic where the remote learning, all this, that may have, it may have changed the way uh, teachers approach science and such. I mean, cause you know, one of the cool things for me is that you know, one of the things that's come out of this is that there, I'm running into almost no one now that does not understand how to have a zoom meeting <laughs> You know, <laughs> before that the pandemic, not so much. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. Well, you're right. There has been a, a paradigm shift lately. And I think, uh, to answer your question, which is a great one, I think that having the remote teaching and learning experience has actually 
helped uh, all of us as uh, science and STEM educators. And I think uh, as a result of that remote learning, uh, it was due to the pandemic. I mean, there's no other reason that we would have all done that simultaneously. I'm seeing uh, more integration of digital content kind of woven into the tapestry of, of science and STEM programs than ever before. And I think that we're going to uh, continue to evolve towards more of that blended approach. And whether that's a whole class blended or half class or cohorted uh, blended learning, uh, I think that that's really uh, where we're headed. Um, you know, that Pavo platform that we talked about, you're, uh, you know, you talked about, well, hey, if I had a video beforehand, that would have been exceptionally beneficial. Well, we not only have uh, embedded those videos, but we have virtual reality uh, sessions in there. We have animations. We have all kinds of things integrated into that Pavo solution that are age-appropriate and discipline-specific. And we're doing that because I'd like to think that we're pioneers in this area and that we are looking forward to uh, the days where you can have those students come in even more prepared. And of course, because it's Flynn Scientific, we've definitely spent a lot of time on the preventative safety up front and specific call-outs to the safety protocols in each of those activities so that when students do go in to do a chemical reaction in person or a dissection in person, many of them have already seen how that has been done by a professional or they've done the uh, virtual uh, version of that themselves and they've been able to uh, really uh, make some changes to those simulations and see what happens as they do X versus Y. And it's really, really uh, exciting right now. We are truly on the precipice of the next iteration of science and STEM teaching. And uh, honestly, the, the pandemic has really pushed us probably 10 years ahead in a very short period of time. That's cool. That's very cool. <laughs> You know, you know, James, we're getting ready to, we're getting close to finishing up now. And uh, um, have you got any final thoughts for us today from the world of science and STEM safety and compliance? <laughs> uh, uh, of course I do. Um, now, there are certain things that I don't want to see in labs, right? If you can prevent them by just not having access to them, that's great. Now, in your science and STEM classroom as part of that hazard analysis or risk analysis or assessment, uh, there's things that should not be there, and you can download all of this from Flynn. Uh, we're happy to provide that to you. Um, but just common things, alcohol burners, uh, uh, bacterial cultures, bodily fluids, right? <laughs> you still find these things in schools today. Um, Formaldehyde-based specimens, um, uh, mercury thermometers, uh, oil-based paint thinners, uh, you know, poisonous plants believe it or not you can find poisonous plants in elementary schools it's just nice. frightening nice. um uh, really the really concentrated corrosives your strong acids and your strong bases um really you want to be mindful to order in smaller quantities and in lower concentrations or molarities and if you know if you were to ask me you know what's one final word i'd like to give you three if i could three words chemical hygiene, 
plan. Now, make sure that you have one. Uh, your, your school district needs to be able to provide you with a chemical hygiene plan. Some places call it an environmental hygiene plan. But that is something that needs to be uh, reviewed and updated on a minimum on an annual basis. But that it's a resource that all teachers and administrators across your school district have access to that outlines all of those standard operating procedures and really helps to guide you in making safer curriculum-based decisions. So that's the final words, uh, chemical hygiene plan. <laughs> I like that. That works. That, that, that works fantastically. How's that? Uh, I like that's, that. Well, that's perfect. I like that. <laughs> James, before, you know, as we're closing here, where can listeners reach out and connect and learn more? Oh, that's easy. You can reach us here at Flynn Scientific, which is simply at www.flinnsci.com. Feel free to connect with us using the website or toll-free numbers, our chat feature. Hey, you can even send us a passenger pigeon if it knows where to go. We're more than happy to accommodate however you want to reach us, and we you have access to all of our combined time, talent, and experiences here at Flynn Scientific. I like that. I like that. And uh, yeah, he just gave me a nice image of the passenger pigeon trying to get to that snow you got going. <laughs> I'm getting through. We're going to get this message through. Anyway. Oh, uh, yes, exactly right. So I got one last question for you, and the question is going to sure. go like this. If you had a chance to talk with an audience of brand new high school principals, what is something that you would like to share with them about keeping their teachers up to date on lab safety and current procedures for safely operating labs? I would say to them that safety training counts. Professional development and learning in an ongoing safety program specific to science and STEM. Again, I'm highly biased, but that also needs to apply across all of the, the teachers as well. But listen, we've been doing this uh, since 1977. We have a lot of experience here. We've learned a lot and we have educated hundreds of thousands of educators who have gone on to be administrators, science supervisors, even gone into the uh, state departments of education. Now, I would encourage all of those people involved with, uh, you know, if you have a new building, if you have a retrofit going on in an older existing building, uh, there are a lot of current procedures. There's a lot of uh, innovation that has happened. And I would really like uh, to make sure that you have the right products, that you have the right furniture, that you have the right safety equipment, and of course, know how to use all of that and integrate it all into your science and STEM program to offer a much safer and comprehensive, robust uh, safety program. That's awesome. That's awesome. Love it. You know, and, uh, and by the way, I wish I talked with you a long time ago when I was a brand new principal because <laughs> <laughs> there are things that I, I would have had you go over with me and then I would have shared with everybody to say, okay, come here. Let's make sure we're on track here. So I, I, I like that. Uh, James, thanks so much for being my guest again. It was great catching up. Safety in the science and STEM lab is extremely important. It's great uh, what you guys do at Flynn Scientific, all that good stuff you guys got going on there. And it was awesome learning about making the lab safe and, and uh, creating that environment, something where kids – can uh, safely learn. So uh, wishing the best in all you do. Well, thank you very much. And I want to leave with one last commentary, if I may. On behalf of everyone here at Flynn Scientific, it has been my honor, and it is my honor right now to express our heartfelt gratitude to every teacher for all that they do. 
because you have a legacy that outlives you in that classroom. As those students progress forward, they're going to be innovators. They're going to be change makers. And a lot of that can be traced back, now I'm biased, to your science and STEM teachers who may have created that spark or that encouraged that innate curiosity, created that passion for learning. And teachers, you have a much greater impact than you may realize right now. And you're shaping the trajectory of your student's academic career, not only into post-secondary or the workplace, but where they're actually going to change our communities and then our overall society. So thank you to every single one of you. All teachers are truly inspirational and you're really the anchors for our continued growth. Thank you so much, Stephen. This has been an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, again, I'm James Palson, the Director of Education, Safety and Compliance, and it is uh, always a pleasure and I hope to be invited back. And you most definitely will be. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.